Well, good morning, church family. Uh, it's good to see you today. We saw many of you yesterday had a great time at the Marlins game together, though it was a football score, we have to admit, before the Lord this morning, but it was still a joy. My son had so much fun, he, he was wishing for extra innings when we went to leave. He said, why are we leaving? We're like, games come to an end, you know, and he wanted to go back into the stadium. So thanks to all the ladies who loved on my boys yesterday. Well, today it's my joy to continue our Summer in the Psalms series with a very popular psalm, Psalm 23, and it's been mainly preached in funeral sermons, but as I studied this week, rightly so. It, it very much is a, an encouraging psalm meant to speak to us during our time of trial. And so if you have your copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to, to follow along. It's just a good habit. We want to make sure we're being good Bereans as we see in the book of Acts, meaning that we follow along, we check what the pastor says to make sure it squares with Scripture. And today the message is simply called, The Lord is My Shepherd. The Lord is My Shepherd. Well, Tuesday morning we got news of a devastating tragedy that occurred in my little hometown. And so my little high school I went to was only about 400 people. It's really not grown much since then. And there's this young man, his name was Maverick Dalton, and he's actually a distant family member of mine. He just graduated in May. He just got a great job fresh out of high school doing what he wanted to do. And on his way to work, he was killed in a fatal car accident. And they don't know exactly what happened other than somehow he drifted off the road and he hit a tree on his way to work. Now, fortunately, this young man was a Christian. He had placed his faith in Jesus at age seven. His daddy actually got to baptize him. So the family does grieve with hope. But they have been suddenly ushered into one of the deepest and darkest seasons of suffering that they will ever experience on this side of eternity. And so if you would like to add them to your prayer list, the last name is Dalton, D-A-L-T-O-N, as they would uh, desire your prayers. Well, I start that way to say that Psalm 23 is actually written to those kind of people this morning. People who are going through the trials of their lives. See, scholars believe that David actually wrote this psalm during some of the lowest points of his life, during some of the most intense suffering he had ever experienced. He likely either wrote it when he was running away from King Saul, remember when he was jealous of him and trying to kill him, or it could have been as a little bit of an older man when his son Absalom staged a coup and tried to take over the kingdom. For David, both of these seasons were very deep and dark and he experienced personal betrayal and uncertainty and lots of heartbreak. And so maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe you came in here and, and the rain outside kind of matches your mood. You're in the midst of an unprecedented season of suffering related to something like a divorce or a lost loved one or a miscarriage or betrayal or heartbreak or unemployment. Well, understand that King David... He empathizes with you this morning. That's what he was going through. And thankfully, he models for believers, he models for Radiant City, just how it is that we too endure the various storms that come our way. And in short, David endures 
by drawing strength from God, who is the good shepherd of his people. And so here's the big idea if you want to note this down. During seasons of suffering and uncertainty, when we're in darkness and it just can't, it seems like we can't find our way out, we must remember that God, he guides us, he guards us, and he gives us his presence. God continues to guide us, to guard us, and he gives us his presence. So let's take these in turn. Number one, God guides. God is good to guide his people. Now, when you find yourself in pitch black darkness, how comforting is it to know that you have a sure and steady guide? I was reflecting back on our honeymoon five years ago, and Brittany and I had the privilege to go to Scotland. We spent time in Edinburgh and traveled to the Highlands, and one evening in Edinburgh, we got the bright idea to take a ghost tour in the underground part of the city. And it was all well and good until we climbed down into these dank and dark caverns with many other people around, and, and the lights went out for a moment, and my anxiety set in. You know, I'm terribly claustrophobic, and, and I started to make my way out of there. And we went to the guide, and we said, hey, we have some anxiety issues. And, and she kind of pats Brittany on the shoulder and said, honey, it's going to be okay. You know, it's, it's just for a little bit. And I'm like, it's me. I'm the one who's struggling, you know, right now. And so, and so thankfully, though, it was uncomfortable, but her words calmed me. They reassured me, and sure enough, though it was uncomfortable, I made it to the end, to the light, because she guided me along the way. And so in the midst of David's darkness, he's reminding his own soul that, yes, God is still good. He's still my good shepherd, and followers of God will never lack for his guidance, no matter what we go through. And so notice again in verse 1, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in, in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now you might be tempted to say, well... It's easy to say that, but remember where David could have been when he was saying that. On the run, maybe hiding away in caves. So he's clinging to what he knows about God, his goodness, even though his circumstance is not all that favorable at the moment. And so the imagery of green pastures and still waters, it's a reminder that no matter what you're going through, where God will eventually take you, will be somewhere ultimately good. Though it might be difficult to get there, he will guide us to eventual places of rest and refreshment and restoration. Uh, you, know, you might want to pick up this book if you're a fan of Psalm 23. It's by a man named Philip Keller. And the book is called A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. So he really gives you a a window into the world of a shepherd, and it makes these analogies really pop. And so he reminds us in this book that sheep, they are terrible creatures of habit. And that's kind of why God says that we're sheep, right? He uses that analogy for us. We often walk the same paths over and over and over again because we like to be comfortable. They're familiar. 
We don't like to get far off the beaten path. But eventually the, the problem is, as sheep walk these same paths again and again and again, they wear down the grass to the point that there's nothing to eat. And if they keep walking them, eventually that worn soil becomes contaminated with their own waste, and it becomes a breeding ground for diseases and parasites. So the shepherd comes along and he begins to lead them on new pathways. And, and like us, initially the sheep, they don't like it. They resist because they don't want the uncomfortable. They don't want the unfamiliar. But eventually the, the sheep, they give in, they surrender, and they stay that much closer to God, the, sh- the shepherd, so they don't get lost. Well, here's the point. Though God promises to lead us down paths of righteousness, it won't always seem like the best path because his paths are often uncomfortable and unfamiliar. Let me say that again. Though God promises to lead us down pathways of righteousness, they won't always seem like the best path because they'll likely be uncomfortable and unfamiliar. But understand, it is actually a great mercy of God to drive us out of our comfort zones again and again. And why is that? Because when we're living on the edge, we learn to depend on God in deeper ways. Our faith muscles are worked and they grow. And we have assurance here if we keep clinging tightly to Jesus, you have great assurance that he will eventually lead you to those greener pastures and those stiller waters. Another way to say it is on the other side of your storm, you have a promise that God will give you a season of refreshment for your soul. Amen? And so many of us could testify that that is the case. So secondly, not only does God guide us during times of trial, God, he guards us. He guards his sheep. Verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And the literal translation here of verse 4 is the, the shadow that death cast, or deep darkness. And it's likely the imagery that David has in his mind is the darkness and the threats of the desert as he's on the lamb, as he's on the run. See, back in biblical times, the the desert, the wilderness, was a place where you encountered deep shadows and you wouldn't know for sure what bandits might be lurking by or what flash floods awaited you or what ferocious animals may try to reach out and grab you, but... Even when we experience these intense periods of suspense and danger, believers here are given the assurance that God remains with us no matter what we go through. Therefore, since his presence abides with us, we need not fear no matter how dark it gets. And so the language here of the staff points to the fact that the shepherds would literally take their staffs and protect the sheep. They would fend off the predators and sometimes even the bandits. And remember when King David, when he was younger, when he was giving his resume for why he should fight Goliath, he said, hey, I 
I've killed wild beasts as I've been tending my flock. And so he had experience with this. Likewise, aren't we so thankful that God does indeed give his people physical protection? You know, a lot of us in this room have been protected by God on so many occasions that we're completely oblivious to. His sovereign hand has been behind the scenes, sustaining us and keeping us alive and keeping us away from fatal car accidents. And many people in this room could testify to the seen hand of God's protection. How many of y'all have recovered from serious illnesses and have seen cancer go into remission and have got healed afresh after bad accidents? None of that happens simply because you're a resilient person. It happened because God spared you. He showed mercy on you. He protected you during those moments. You don't ever forget when Brittany came down with what's called HELP syndrome. It's a life-threatening pregnancy disorder. And across the world, one in four women die when they contract it. And so she had to have an emergency C-section with Knox when he was a child. And I look back, and that was some of the most traumatic and darkest and most challenging times of our lives. So I remember when they took Knox out, his lungs were not fully developed, and he was in the NICU, and he was struggling to breathe, and, and as they were tending to Brittany, her blood platelet count kept dropping, and she was struggling, and man, I became crippled with fear. And I can remember about three in the morning, I, I made my way to an empty waiting room and, and got on my face in the floor and just said, oh God, it feels like your shadow of death is falling over my family. And I need you right now. I need you to help us and to sustain us and to protect us and to please bring us through. And by God's grace, he answered. And y'all saw Knox at the ball game last night. I mean, he, he's fine and dandy now. You know, he's a handful now. And my wife is healthy. And, and by God's grace, he answered. Now, we'll never know exactly why on this side of eternity, but we also know it's a hard truth that it's not always his will to protect us physically. And even if we are the recipient of miraculous healing, eventually we will all get sick again. And we will die because the earth and our bodies, they're cursed because of sin. In the, in the big scheme of things, we're all incredibly frail, and these bodies will wear out and they will fail. That's why it's so important that we lean on God for the very best protection that he offers, namely protection for our souls, the protection that matters most. And the Bible's great promise is the moment, the instant that you turn away from your sins and trust in Jesus, he envelops you with his salvation. And the Bible says that, that no one or no thing will ever strip you away from his strong grasp. A scripture I cherish is John 10, 28 through 29. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I mean, what good news that is. You have security in your salvation the moment you trust in him. 
You never have to worry about hell again. And even if loved ones die, and even if life is cut short, there'll be great reunions that take place one day. So we have so much to look forward to. One day Jesus will return, and our souls will be reunited with new and glorified bodies. And we'll never, ever have to worry about death again. Now, we also need to take a moment to notice the language of the rod in verse 4. And this is a bit painful. But in Scripture, the rod usually refers to discipline. And Proverbs twenty-two fifteen 15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it away from him. And I'm not here to tell you exactly how you should be disciplining your children, but you should be disciplining them according to God's word. Hebrews 12, 5 through 6 says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You know, I think back to high school friends that I've had and some of the ones who've really strayed away and have made a mess of their lives, and I look back, they had zero discipline. Their parents thought it was loving to spoil them and let them do what they want. But the Bible says the most loving thing we can do is actually to prohibit our children from doing what they really want because our desires are jacked up apart from Jesus. And so parents are disciple makers. We're guides. We have to discipline and, and correct. And listen, if you're a Christian, you never outgrow your need for this. No matter how old you are, we will still stray. And God, out of love, he keeps us in line. And so the point here is that many times the one that God is protecting us from is ourselves. He's saving us from ourselves and our foolishness through his discipline. You know, the way salvation works is when we trust in him, we do gain salvation, but our sin remains. That, that old part of us has to be renewed. I mean, we know, we send his word that his pathways are best for us, but... Man, we're prone to wonder. We're prone to want to drink from the empty cisterns that don't truly give us spiritual replenishment. And, and we've probably all felt the discipline of the Lord. But it's not because he hates us, it's because he loves us. And he wants to bring us back. And so understand this morning, if you're experiencing pain because of sins and decisions you've made, understand that affliction is shaping you. It is pruning you. God disciplines his children so that we regain our dependency on him. Well, finally, in addition to his guidance and his guardianship of us during times of trial, let's remember, number three, God gives. And the best thing that God gives us is the good gift of himself. God gives us and pours out on us his holy presence. And I love verse 5. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. 
again, just pause and think about it. David doesn't say, no, I'm, he doesn't say I'm overflowing because my enemies are being defeated. No, in the midst of my battles, I'm still overflowing because you are with me. And so the imagery here, it shifts from being a sheep in God's flock to being a house guest of the very God above. And a truth that's being communicated is that our enemies, though they do their best to harm us, no matter what they throw at us, they can't disrupt our fellowship with God. They can't destroy our generous hospitality that we enjoy with our Heavenly Father. But friends, understand that what is best, very best, about being a house guest of God is not the table spread that he gives us, though it's good, it's the fact that he dines with us, that he dwells near us. You know, if you talk to a Muslim, they will tell you that the very best part of heaven is the rare occasion when Allah comes for a visit. Aren't you thankful, though, the Bible rightly teaches that God doesn't just visit. He, we stay together. We're continual house guests of his as the ages roll on and on and on. And God's presence is directly tied to the language of having our heads anointed with oil. Uh, if you return again to the pasture with me as we think again on Philip Keller's work, he says that shepherds would anoint the sheep's heads for at least three reasons. So first of all, when the flies and the gnats and the mosquitoes were bothering the flock, he would put the anointing oil on as a repellent. Secondly, when the sheep broke out with skin diseases, he would put the oil on because it worked medicinally and it would heal them. And this one's my favorite. Third, during mating season, the rams would battle to establish dominance. And you have seen, uh, you know, just those rams just butting each other is quite dramatic. So oftentimes the, the shepherd would put oil on the rams' heads and faces, maybe like the way boxers put Vaseline on their faces so that when they would battle, the damage would not be as severe. So maybe, Brittany, maybe we should rub up Knox and Nash with oil. And <laughs> when they fought each other, you know, they won't inflict as much damage at the house. We'll try that this afternoon. Now, understand that oil in the Bible, it almost always represents the Spirit of God. And Keller says he believes David's showing us how God is good to pour out, to lavish us with the Holy Spirit when we go through times of trial. First of all, he gives us supernatural peace with his presence that helps get rid of our pesky annoyances, these anxieties that nag us and eat away at us. Secondly, he fills us with the Spirit to fight off temptation, to keep us from the contagion, the infection of the world, because during times of weakness, we're often most prone to temptation, but the Spirit keeps us from temptation. And then third, he pours out his love on us so we can be patient with one another, so we can forgive one another. And how many people know when you're down, when you're beat up, you can be a little bit edgy, but the Spirit helps us maintain a posture of humility and a heart of love, and he even allows us to forgive our enemies, the very ones who are trying to do us harm. And trials have a way 
of working God's grace so deep within us that our cups can overflow. And his grace spills out from us to other people. And again, guys, remember the context. He's not saying, hey, my cup's overflowing when Saul is dead or when Absalom's been done away with, when his hair was, remember, hanging on the tree and he's dead. He says, no, right now, my cup's overflowing because these trials have worked grace in my heart and mercy and have given me more of your presence than, than the good days ever did for me. I thought about this this week. Oftentimes we want our suffering to be immediately removed. But what if the very thing we're praying for removal from is the very thing God's using to make us more like his son? What if that, that one thing, that thorn in the flesh that we're so desperate to get rid of is the very thing that God is using to make us more like Jesus? And speaking of Jesus, I think we'd all do well to remember Christ's posture of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke 22, 41-42 says, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throat, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So remember, in addition to being 100% God, Christ was 100% man. And in his flesh, he recoils. I mean, who wouldn't? Against the notion of being slaughtered on a cruel Roman cross. But Jesus always perfectly followed the will of the Father. And he surrendered to his good plans, even if the tangible good was lagging behind a little bit. And we know on this side that it was only through Christ suffering and his substitutionary death on the cross that we have salvation, that, that the enemy, Satan, was defeated forever. So he was willing to endure suffering for a season if it resulted in greater good, if it resulted in being with his people in paradise forever. See, Radiant City, our sins, they keep us from the presence of God. But aren't we so thankful this morning that the great shepherd, the good shepherd, that he became the sacrificial lamb so people like you and I could be invited back in. And once we're in, once we're in fellowship with God, once we're counted among his flock, verse 6 says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I know this is simplistic, but I don't know why I've been getting misty-eyed over this this week that we get to spend forever together. Every believer that you've loved that has come and gone, there'll be great reunions that take place someday. And the pain we feel at times when people have to move away or they take new jobs and, and go away, someday in heaven, that will never happen. We'll always be together. In Christ's bonds of love forever and ever and ever without end. Now, one final thought I had this week. Some of you may be asking, well, goodness and mercy, it says they're always following me, but, but pastor, they seem like they're, they're, they're a good bit off right now. You know, they're, they're a way back. 
You know, how do we process that? Are they ever going to catch up? Well, just remember that we see this lag over and over again in Scripture. I thought about young Joseph. Remember how his brothers did him wrong and sold him into slavery? Even though he was God's man and he ascended and descended, was imprisoned by Potiphar, that time span between when he was sold into slavery, he was 17 years old. And when he finally became the vice regent of Egypt, he was about 30. That's a pretty big lag. But eventually, God's mercy sustained him and helped him, but eventually caught up, and he got through the other side. And again, we see with Jesus, he suffered, he died, he was buried, the Son of God slaughtered, but yet he rose again, and he ascended, and he is now at the right hand of God the Father. So this morning, this might be you. It might seem like you're miles ahead and that mercy and grace is lagging so far back, but I think the promise we see here is if you keep clinging to God, and most importantly, if you understand that He will never let go of you, that He's clinging to you, mercy and grace will eventually catch up. Psalm 35 says, Weeping may tarry for the night. Y'all finish it, but what? But joy comes with the morning. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we are thankful for this psalm, and this is a passage that has brought so much encouragement and hope to sufferers for so many years. And even now, God, I want to pray for the Dalton family back home. God, would you please envelop Cody and Rachel and the family with your grace and your love and your help as they mourn the loss of their precious son. And God, for those of us in this room who are suffering, maybe silently, God, would you just please help us? Give us reminders that you've not forgotten about us, that your presence is still with us, that we still have resources even in the trial. But God, also help us to understand that these trials won't last forever. God, you are the God of the valley and the mountain. And I'm praying, God, that for those of us in the room who might have been in the valley for some time, God, would you bring them through and may they be placed firmly on the mountaintop. And then, Father, I know that in this existence, some people it feels like their whole lives may be a valley and they'll suffer and it just seems to never go away. But yet, God, we have this great assurance that someday, if we're in you, that the storms will pass forever. And that, God, you'll come back for us and we'll stay forever in your loving arms as your house guests. So this morning, God, as we take communion together, as we sing together, may your grace minister to us and heal us in the deepest parts. And we pray this in your name. Amen.